Welcome to True Crime and Horror, the podcast that delves into the darkest and most chilling stories from the world of crime and horror. Join us as we explore the fascinating and often terrifying world of true crime and horror. From notorious serial killers and unsolved mysteries to spine-tingling ghost stories and haunted houses. Our expert hosts will guide you through the most gripping cases and terrifying tales, providing insight, analysis, and plenty of scares along the way. If you're a fan of true crime and horror, this is the podcast for you. So lock the doors, turn off the lights. If you've checked out a lot of Unsolved Mysteries content before, it can almost end up feeling like you're listening to movie plots rather than things that have happened to real, ordinary people like you and me. But, as this next case proves, any one of us could unwillingly become the star of our own murder mystery. The year was 2005. The subject of this story? Todd Gibe, your average 22-year-old, living in the small community of Kasnovia, Michigan. With a good job at Hager Distribution, an active social life, and a loving family, the future seemed bright for Todd. But sadly, that future was about to be taken away from him by a sinister force. June 11th, 2005, was a Saturday, and for a young and outgoing guy like Todd, that meant a night out with his buddies. Now, Todd and his friends were a very close group. Not surprising, since Kasnovia only had a population of 314 at the time. He left the house that he shared with his cousin at 7.30pm, and went to meet his friends at the Half Moon Bar and Grill. They ate dinner together, and at 9.30, set off to an orchard party just off a dirt road. Basically in the middle of nowhere, but still very close to where Todd was staying with his cousin. Most of the youngsters living in and around the area went to this event, about a hundred people in total. One person who wasn't attending was Todd's designated driver. She dropped Todd and the others off at the orchard, and promised to pick them all up later. Straight away, the event seemed like it was going to be a rager. There was a keg, and a bonfire, and by all accounts, the atmosphere was electric. A little too electric. At approximately 12.45am, a fight broke out between a few of the local guys, and almost erupted into a full brawl. This prompted Todd, who was still in a sober state of mind, to leave the party very abruptly. It's unclear whether he was frightened about the brawl, or whether he was just tired and wanted to get some rest. But either way, he said a quick goodbye to his friends, and told them he was going to walk home. He set off on foot, and disappeared from the party into the darkness. Since he only lived about a mile away, and hadn't drunk too much, his pals weren't too worried about him making the journey by himself. But almost as soon as he left the orchard, Todd made a series of odd phone calls that were concerning to say the least. At 12.47am, just two minutes after leaving the orchard, Todd called up his close friend, the woman who had dropped him off. She answered, and Todd simply said, I've had enough, before the line cut out. It's not known whether he meant he had had enough of the event and wanted to be picked up, or if he meant he had had enough generally. In another call, which he made at 12.51, he told that same friend, I'm in a field, before the line cut out once again. His friend immediately called him back, but all she could hear on the other end of the line was either the rush of wind or heavy breathing. 
phone records show that Todd kept trying to call his friend back for the next five minutes, but the calls wouldn't go through. That was the last contact anyone had with Todd Guybe. He never made it home that night. While making the mile-long journey back to his cousin's house, Todd seemingly fell off the face of the earth and vanished entirely. For the next three weeks, a search effort involving 1,500 officers and volunteers worked day and night to help find Todd. Planes scoured the area from above, and thermal imaging devices were used to try and locate him. In the latter days of the search, sniffer dogs were brought in to track Todd's movements. They picked up on his scent and followed it from the orchard along a dirt road and up into a field. It appeared that after leaving the party, Todd was indeed walking in the right direction back home. But strangely, the dogs lost his scent as soon as they reached the main paved road. The road that would have led Todd straight to his cousin's house. The final stretch of his journey. But why did his scent simply vanish when he reached it? Did somebody pick him up after all? On July 2nd, Todd was found. But to everyone's dismay, the search for him didn't have a happy ending. A local couple found his body in Ovidal Lake, very close to where his scent disappeared, smack bang in the middle of the search area. But he wasn't submerged in the lake. He was standing upright, his head and shoulders above the water's surface. It almost looked like he was still alive and was just treading water. But there were no ripples, and the lake was completely still. At first, the wife thought that he was a beaver, but when the couple realized what they were actually looking at, they immediately called the authorities. Investigators arrived and removed Todd from the lake. He was fully clothed, and his wallet was still in his pocket. There were no noticeable injuries on his body, and since he had a large amount of alcohol in his system, they theorized that Todd must have left the party, then decided to go for a drunken swim, and ultimately drowned. In their eyes, it was a classic case of misadventure, and they closed the case almost immediately. But their conclusion just didn't seem to make sense for several reasons. Firstly, how had Todd's body gone undetected in that lake for three weeks when he was so obviously standing in the middle of it? A group of 1500 had thoroughly searched that area. It seems strange that nobody spotted him. Secondly, most people who drown are found bobbing face down in the water. But the chilling way in which Todd was standing, it almost appeared as if somebody had placed him there. It also doesn't make sense that Todd would go swimming fully clothed. Not to mention, when he left the orchard, everybody noted how clear Todd's head was, like he hadn't had too many drinks at all. In response to these questions, a team of independent investigators examined Todd's remains, and what they discovered was truly disturbing. Although Todd had been missing for three weeks, he had only been dead for two to five days. His body was in too fresh a condition, and there was hardly any insect activity or algae built up on his body. Even stranger, they found absolutely no water in his lungs, none whatsoever, which completely discredited the police's conclusion that he had drowned, and strongly indicated that he had been killed on land and then placed in the water. As a result of these findings, this independent team conducted a number of tests with pig carcasses. They placed these carcasses in the lake to examine the rate at which they decomposed. 
Pigs are, anatomically, very similar to humans, so they wanted to see if, after three weeks, their carcasses were in a similar condition to Todd's body. As expected, a huge number of insects colonised the pigs. On top of that, there was also a large amount of bloating, foaming, algae and slime buildup, all things that weren't present on Todd. There was no way he had been in the water for all those weeks, and he had almost certainly been the victim of foul play. This new team theorised that when Todd made it to the paved road, he was actually picked up by one or more people, who then held him on land for a period of time before taking his life and eerily placing him in the water. They even put forward a possible group of suspects, namely the Smiley Face Killers, a group you have likely heard of before. Their existence remains unverified, but many people, including seasoned investigators, believe they're a shadowy group of organised killers who target young, successful, popular men, and almost always dump their remains in rivers, canals and lakes, often leaving behind their graffiti signature close to the scene, a crudely sprayed smiley face. According to some witnesses, one such smiley face was found spray-painted on a tree near Ovidal Lake, though I can't seem to find any official reports confirming that. The team speculated that the Smileys forced Todd to consume a lethal dose of amitriptyline and desipramine, two prescription substances which were also found in his system and which Todd himself hadn't been prescribed. Despite the independent team's findings, the authorities stuck with their ruling and said Todd had accidentally perished while night swimming, even though there was no water in his lungs. It's entirely possible that Todd's demise was a complete accident, but the official version of events ignores too much evidence to be taken seriously, and the quest for definitive answers persists to this day. Todd's mother has tried for years to get her son's case reopened, but even though all the evidence points towards foul play, the cops still refuse to take another look at it. Remember, Todd lived in a very small community of only 314 people. If somebody did take his life, it doesn't seem like it would be hard to find the person responsible. That combined with the authorities refusing to reopen their investigation, has led some people to believe there's a cover-up going on. If that's the case, then the only questions left to answer are who are the authorities protecting, and why? We'll end things with a mystery from Germany, that of Ursula Hermann, the girl in the box. Ursula was a sweet and intelligent ten-year-old who loved nothing more than gymnastics and playing the piano. In 1981, she lived in the small village of Schondorf, Bavaria, with her parents and brother, Michael. On September 15th, the siblings both attended an after-school piano lesson, after which Ursula took her bike and rode to a gymnastics class, which she always attended with her cousin. Being close friends, Ursula went back to her cousin's house in the neighbouring village of Ecking, and, at 7.30pm, began the short cycle back to her own home. Thing is, she never made it. When 8pm rolled around, Ursula's mother called her cousin's house and asked if her daughter would be leaving soon. The cousin's mother told her that Ursula had left 30 minutes earlier. The ride should have only taken 5 to 10 minutes, so immediately, alarm bells started ringing. The two households immediately started searching the areas between Schondorf and Ecking, but there was no sign of Ursula anywhere. 
Her parents went straight to the police station, and before long, a huge-scale search effort was underway. Almost the entire population of both villages were out looking for Ursula, but their efforts were all in vain. Two days later, on September 17th, Ursula's parents received a bizarre phone call from an unknown person. When the phone rang, they both jumped for the receiver, hoping against hope that someone was calling with information about their daughter's whereabouts. For the first few seconds of the call though, all they heard on the other end of the line was silence. Then, an eerie radio jingle began to play. They didn't know what to make of it. After receiving three identical calls, the authorities began tapping the family phone lines. Three days after that first call, a mysterious letter arrived in the mail, made from letters cut out from books. It read as follows. We have taken your daughter. If you ever want to see her alive again, pay two million Deutschmarks as a ransom. Two million Deutschmarks worked out to be roughly $1.2 million, a huge sum which the Herman family simply didn't have. Still, they were going to agree to pay and worry about how later. But how were they supposed to tell the burbs that they were willing to pay? Well, as it turns out, the note had arrived much later than the burbs had anticipated. It was supposed to have been read before the first phone call was made, but due to postal delays had arrived after. The cryptic radio jingles that they played over the phone were supposed to elicit a yes or no response with regards to the ransom payment, but without the note telling them that, there was no way Ursula's parents could have known. Well, the next time the phone rang, Ursula's mother confirmed that they would indeed pay. Then, on Monday the 20 follows, We have taken your daughter. If you ever want to see her alive again, pay two million Deutschmarks as a ransom. Two million Deutschmarks worked out to be roughly $1.2 million, a huge sum which the Herman family simply didn't have. Still, they were going to agree to pay and worry about how later. But how were they supposed to- Over the course of the next few days, the Hermans reached out to everyone in their community for support, and as a result, were able to raise the two million Deutschmarks they needed to get their daughter back. Now all they had to do was wait for the perps to tell them when and where to meet. But those instructions never came. After two weeks with no contact, search efforts for Ursula reignited. Hundreds of officers, tens of sniffer dogs, and many people from the villages combed the woods. This time, they used metal rods to search beneath the leaves and foliage. Finally, 19 long days after Ursula had first disappeared, a huge discovery was made. Using a metal rod, one of the officers found something hidden beneath the forest floor. A green box, shallowly buried in the earth. Inside was the lifeless body of Ursula Herman. Everyone was devastated. Ursula's parents had agreed to pay the ransom, so why had the perp so callously taken her life? Well, as it would turn out, they likely hadn't meant to. To begin with, Ursula's remains were examined. It was clear that she hadn't put up much of a fight, had likely been sedated when she was first taken, and hadn't tried to escape. As for the box she was entombed in, it had actually been designed to keep Ursula both alive and entertained. There was food and water inside it, along with books, a small bulb, a radio, a toilet bucket, 
and a ventilation pipe, which went up to the surface so she could breathe. But just like how they hadn't anticipated their ransom note being delivered late, they had also failed to consider air circulation. Despite designing the box to keep Ursula alive, she'd ultimately perished due to a lack of oxygen. The ventilation pipe simply didn't allow for enough air exchange, and in all likelihood, she had suffocated just a few hours after being placed in the box. The authorities quickly realised that the box was far too big and heavy for one person to have moved alone, meaning there were at least two perps involved. They were quickly tipped off that a man named Werner Mazarek may have been one of those responsible. Mazarek lived next door to Ursula and her family, and was known to be in a lot of debt, so he certainly had a motive. Thing is, he also had an alibi. He claimed that at the time Ursula disappeared, he was playing the board game Risk with his wife and her friends, something which they all confirmed. He was taken in for questioning anyway, but released after several days. After his release, an acquaintance of his, Klaus Pfaffinger, told the authorities that Mazarek had asked him to dig a hole out in the woods not long before Ursula vanished. Thing is, when the authorities asked Pfaffinger to take them to the hole, he was unable to do so, and recanted his statement. Perhaps he was lying for attention. Perhaps he wanted revenge on Mazarek for something. Or perhaps he was involved in some way. In 2007, the statute of limitations on the case was fast approaching. By that point, Pfaffinger had passed away, and the only living suspect was Werner Mazarek. With nothing left to go on, and the case about to freeze over forever, the authorities raided Mazarek's house, and found a Grundig model TK-248 tape recorder, something which he could have used to play the jingle all those years ago. They used that tape recorder, along with Pfaffinger's past statement, to take Mazarek and his wife to trial. In all honesty, it wasn't a lot to go on, with all of this evidence being circumstantial. There was no DNA evidence or fingerprints to speak of. Even Ursula's own brother, Michael, didn't believe that the couple were responsible. Still, against all odds, Werner Mazarek was found guilty and sentenced to lifelong imprisonment. His wife was acquitted. To this day, Mazarek remains behind bars, though there are many who consider him to be an innocent man, most notably Michael Herman. In 2016, Michael was able to get Mazarek a retrial, this time with strong evidence that he wasn't the one responsible for what happened to Ursula. Sound experts had analysed the tape recorder and said there was no way to prove it was the one that had played the jingles. A language expert examined the ransom note and concluded that it had to have been made by someone who spoke broken German, someone who wasn't a native speaker like Mazarek. Still, the court refused to overturn his conviction. The final update in this case happened just last year, nearly 30 years after Ursula's life was taken. In March 2021, top German media houses received an anonymous letter in the mail. This still unidentified person confessed that he and his friends were the ones responsible for taking Ursula's life back when they were high school students in 1981, and that Mazarek was an innocent man. It remains unknown whether this confession was legit or not, but with this case now officially closed, it's unlikely anyone's going to look into it.
Can you see me? Hello? Can you find me? Can you find me? I'm here. Behind you, look. Behind you. I'm behind you. I am right behind you. Don't be scared. I just want to play a game with you. Hey, 